we continue our summer sermon series on the topic of worship. Uh, we're going to be looking at a number of passages today, and so rather than read one and pray, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at a bunch of them together. So let's bow now and ask the Lord's guidance in this uh, sermon. Spirit of God, work through your word, through my lips, through the words that I have chosen. Let them be consistent with your word and its message to us. And use your word and my sermon together in our hearts. Work in us to change us. Work in us to uh, help us to respond rightly to the grace we have in Christ Jesus our Savior. It's in his name we pray and in his name we come. Amen. So my childhood church, my boyhood church, had a practice of going once a month uh, to the rescue mission in town and, to, and the men of the church and serving there. And uh, uh, serving there, we, we would uh, meet the church and prepare the meals and we would take it down to the rescue mission and serve the meal. And then we would lead the worship service after a dinner at the rescue mission in, 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 in there in town. So I was, I don't know, I was 13, 14 years old, and my, uh, my father invited me to join the men of the church and go down to the rescue mission. At the end of the uh, 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 meal, uh, we did a time of prayer for the men there in the rescue mission, and we had been told that one of the men had made a recent profession of faith in Christ and, and was uh, growing in, in, in his spiritual life and that he desired to join us in prayer. And so our pastor asked him to, uh, to return one of the prayers. And something interesting happened. It's very striking when you're 14 years old and you're in a Bible study and prayer time, and this gets said. So I can't quote him exactly, but the gentleman, this new Christian, this man at the rescue mission, said something along these lines. He was praying about the, the distress that they were under there. I guess the rescue mission was having problems. Some of the men in there were having issues. And he said he asked God to, to help them because... And his words were, we don't know what the hell is going on here. Now, when you're a 14-year-old and you hear a prayer involving the word hell used that way, it's a bit shocking. It's a bit stunning. And somehow I knew that probably cursing in the midst of a prayer was probably not right. There are certain things we just know. And this, this man was a new Christian, and he needed to grow and learn these things. God's grace to him in all of that. Yet for me, I recognize that that probably was out of line. There are things that we know do not belong to the worship of God. They don't rightly fit in his public corporate worship. Cursing, obviously. Certain things we can, we can all agree do not have any part in the corporate worship of God. Things like human sacrifice. These are things that were a part of certain pagan worship, but they have no place in the true worship of the true God. A temple prostitution, again, commonly practiced in the ancient world, but completely inappropriate. Those things are self-evident. They're kind of obvious. They don't belong. But what about other things? What about things not strictly forbidden? Thankfully, this seems to have died out, but about 10 years ago, all the rage was to have clown communion. I'm not making this up. You can go, you can still find these videos on YouTube. 
We're going to have communion later today, but in clown communion, the elders come up dressed as clowns, and they pass out the elements. I don't know why. I don't know what the thinking was there. But you see, the scriptures don't forbid that. That's not quite as obvious as human sacrifice, so maybe that's okay, right? About the same time, I don't know what was going on 10 years ago, but we were having real problems in the North American church. And it was about the same time 10 years ago that a church in Dallas, Texas, began to offer, I'm not making this up either, pole dancing for Jesus. Pole dancing for Jesus. How on earth do you reconcile that with worship? The problem comes down to a lack of understanding of what is permissible and what is not in the corporate worship of God. You say, well, Scott, those are ridiculous things, but I'll remind you, yeah, 40, 50 years ago, we were wrestling with things like this. Is it okay to have guitars in worship? You see, the problem is that some of these things are legitimate discussions while others are not. We need some guidance on what is appropriate in worship. You see, we have verses like Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you turn in your Bibles quickly to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, these verses will be familiar to many of us, and yet it's worth looking at them again. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, and that therefore, really, Romans 1 through 11, Paul's been making a a spectacular, spectacular, well-reasoned, tightly argued case for the gospel. And now he says, in light of that, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I said 12 and 1 and 2, but we just look at verse 1. There is that sense there that everything we do is a, is a worshipful response to God. And yet somehow we recognize that everything we do, though I mean, every good thing we do, every right, obedient thing we do, though an appropriate part of our personal worship and our personal response to God may not have a place in the corporate worship. We recognize that instinctively. You have probably figured out that I do from time to time kiss my wife. But it has no place in the corporate worship service. It's appropriate, it's good, it's right, but it's not fitting in here. So how do we decide this? How do we decide what belongs in worship and what doesn't? There are those who would say, Anything not forbidden, anything not prohibited, is acceptable. Thus the logic of a clown worship, or a clown communion. It's not prohibited, it's not forbidden, therefore it is permissible. And yet I would point out that these people know that that's not true. They know that there are things which are perfectly okay in one setting, but would be completely inappropriate in worship. And so we come to this question there, and I've got quite a bit of notes there in the bulletin. And I, it's not that I didn't want to leave room for you to write things, but I wanted to make sure that you were kind of, I wanted us to be kind of overwhelmed by the case. I wanted us to see all the evidence there that mounts up for the argument we're making. And I want us to look at this question of, is there a right way and a wrong way to worship God? 
want us first to just think about the logical case. Stepping apart, stepping back from Scripture for just a moment, and just think about the logic of this question. Is there a right way and a wrong way to worship God? Well, we said some weeks back that corporate worship was a special time when we gathered together to show God's worth, to show our affection for God in our attitudes and in our actions, to show our affection for God. We recognize right there that there is, that, that while there may be many ways to show one's affection, the context matters. Again, I just use the example of, of, of a public display of affection. There are married couples for whom a, a, a physical display of affection is completely appropriate in the right context. There's a reason we have a phrase in America like, get a room. Because in the context, it's appropriate of the privacy of their own married lives. It's not appropriate in all settings. We need only look at that. We also understand that if we're going to look for how to show, so we see right away, logically, there are limits to how to what we can use to show our affection to, uh, to God, just like we would show our affection to one another. We also recognize, then, that in the question of what are those things that are appropriate, we look to the person to whom we're trying to show our affection. If I want to show affection to Becky appropriately, and I probably need to pay attention to Becky. We're familiar with this concept, that not all people respond to the same uh, demonstration of affection the same way. Some people want affection shown to them uh, physically. Some want it shown through a gift. Some want it shown through time and attention. You need to pay attention to the one whom you are trying to love in order to get a sense of how to love them. There's an episode of I Love Lucy that is, well, most of them are quite funny actually, but this one in particular, it's the, the title of the episode is called Ethel's Birthday. And in this episode, uh, uh, their neighbor, uh, um, Mertz, uh, uh, Fred Mertz, comes to uh, Lucy and says, listen, Ethel's birthday is coming up and she never seems to like the gifts I get her. Could you help me pick out a gift for Ethel? And uh, Lucy says, well, has she said anything she wants? And Fred says, well, yeah, she mentioned she'd like a new toaster. And Lucy scolds him, oh, that's a terrible birthday gift. You know, that you need to get a gift to get. And so they go through this whole thing. Lucy picks out these, this absurd pair of pants, and Fred gives them to Ethel, and Ethel doesn't like him, and Lucy's offended because Ethel doesn't like it, and chaos breaks out in a typical I love Lucy fashion. The, at, the, uh, at the end of the episode, as things begin to resolve, Lucy says to Ethel, well, what did you want? And she says, I just wanted a new toaster. If he had just listened to the person, had Fred just listened to his wife, he could have shown her affection in the way that she wanted to receive it. We see, without even looking yet at the scriptures, a very strong case to be made for the idea that there are limits on, the, on appropriate corporate worship, and that probably it's God who sets those limits. Since we're trying to show affection to God, since we're trying to show our love to Him in worship, listening to Him about how to do that would seem appropriate. It would seem like the wisest course. 
But there is an overwhelming biblical case to be made in defense of this also. I want to apologize. I put the notes in, in canonical order, in biblical order. But as I begin to refine the sermon in the last couple of days, I really realize that it's not the most logical order. So I want to actually begin with the second one first. The second one first, the second commandment. We just read that a few moments ago in our, our responsive reading, our confession of faith in the Westminster Catechism. The second commandment is a prohibition against the use of idols in worship. Now I want us to stop and think for a moment. What does the first commandment say? What does the first commandment forbid? We didn't read that today. Maybe we should have. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I don't know what you are, what your past with this is like, but for many, many years, well into my 30s, I had a really struggle to understand the first and second commandment. You see, I would read the first commandment and go, okay, no other gods. I read the second commandment, you shall have no idols or graven images. But then I would sit there and go, but an idol is a false god, it's another god, so aren't those two just saying the same thing? I think it's two different ways of giving the same commandment. And the answer is no, they're not. I fail to understand the second commandment. How do we read in our responsive reading? What is the second commandment? It's not a prohibition against false gods. It's a prohibition against false worship of the true God. The first commandment forbids worshiping a false God. The second commandment forbids worshiping the true God falsely. You shall not make for yourself any idol or graven image. In other words, you can't worship me in the way that you choose to do. This really ties back very nicely to the opening of the book of Exodus, where Moses says to God, What is your name? How shall I identify you? And God says, I am that I am. In fact, the Hebrew structure there, the tense cannot be said with certainty. It may be future tense. I will be what I will be. In other words, I'm not going to be defined by my name. Moses, you're asking me to put a label on me and to box me in and define me. I'm not going to be defined in that way. I will reveal myself as I choose to do so. And the second commandment follows up on that. You may not worship me the way you want to worship me. You may not define me in worship the way you want to define me in worship. I will choose how I am worshipped. Do not make for yourself any graven image. By the way, while we are not prone to making idols outwardly in, in, in Protestantism, we are all subject to making idols inwardly. Always be careful. Be sure that you are conceiving of God in your mind and heart in a way that is consistent with how He is revealed Himself. Do not, do not make God to be what you want Him to be in your mind. Now let's go back and look at these other cases, and I'll take them now in the order that's there. We read in our Old Testament reading of Cain's uh, rejected worship there in Genesis chapter 4. We saw that Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice to God. God accepts the one and rejects the other. There's been much debate over the centuries on exactly why, and many have said, well, the problem is not what they brought, it's not how they worship, 
It's what's with the heart. Abel came with a good heart, and Cain came with a bad heart, and therefore, uh, that's why the worship was rejected. But there's some interesting things to note. First of all, if we look at Hebrews 11.4, Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God, now listen to this, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. The author of Hebrews is not judging their hearts, he's judging the actual sacrifice they brought. That there was something about Abel's that was acceptable, something about Cain's that was not. And I would make this argument that the idea of a substitutionary death was already before them, even at the time of Cain and Abel's worship. You see, in the garden, when they sinned, their parents were provided for. Their parents knew they needed to hide from God. Adam and Eve knew they needed to be protected from God. And how was that accomplished? God killed an animal and made for them a covering. This idea that through a substitutionary death, you would be provided with a covering was already there. And Cain refused to provide a substitutionary death. He decided to worship the way he wanted to worship. There is a right way and a wrong way to worship. Our worship does reflect Christ's substitutionary death for us. Number three there, the tabernacle examples. There are at least nine times in the book of Exodus where there are references to um, how the tabernacle should be built. I'm going to look just uh, uh, at two of those real quickly. 25.9, it's in bold there. 25 verse 9, Exodus 25.9 says this, uh, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And the next passage in uh, verse 30, we read on the following, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Seven more times, God is very clear with Moses. Build the tabernacle exactly as I'm telling you to build it. You know, the, the bulk of the book of Exodus is focused on the corporate worship of God's people. Why were they set free from Egypt? God says very clearly, Moses says to, the, to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may serve me. They were set, for, set free for the purpose of worship. And most of the book of Exodus is focused on the how of that worship. God cares a great deal about the how of worship. The golden calf, uh, Exodus chapter 32. Um, you may be familiar with the story. Remember how this goes? Moses has been a long time up on the mountain. The people are down below. They're beginning to grow anxious, and they turn to Aaron, and they say, listen, we don't know what has happened to this fellow Moses. He's probably wandered off. He, he's you know, set up camp. He's never coming back. Lead us. Give us a God. Show us the way. And Aaron calls them to all pile their gold, they melt down their gold, and they build a golden calf. 
Now, something interesting is said. Look at Exodus uh, 32, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 in particular. Exodus 32, looking at verses 4 and 5. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they, Aaron and the other leaders, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now it's still early in the Bible at this point, but already we know the identity of the one who fits this phrase, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That is how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We see later that this is used over and over again to make a reference to the God of Israel. Again, as a kid in Sunday school, I misunderstood this. I tended to think that they had gone off and were worshiping, uh, uh, you know, whatever the Egyptian God of the calf would have been. I don't know, you know, whatever Egyptian God. No, they claimed to be worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, the God of the burning bush, the God of the Ten Commandments, the God, the God that Moses is meeting up on Sinai. That's what they claim to be worshiping. If you think I'm overstating the case, look at the next verse. When Aaron saw this, he built an offer before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. All capital letters. In English translations, that all capital Lord is the rendering of the proper name of God, Yahweh. If there was any doubt after verse 4 about which God was in view, that is taken away. They think they're worshiping Yahweh. You remember how it went. Moses is up on the mountain, and God recognizes what's happening down the valley below, and God is very angry with the people. Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God spares them. But he was furious that they were worshiping him in an unfitting and unsuitable way. Leviticus chapter 10, if you flip over, keep moving through here, if you flip over to Leviticus chapter 10, we have uh, an interesting account. Of, I'm going to read just verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so these are priests, these are men who are supposed to go into the tabernacle and worship. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and these were things that God had told them to use, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This is an interesting passage. These two sons of Aaron are not doing something forbidden. They're not, this is not temple prostitution or human sacrifice or some other pagan rite. But what they're doing was not called for. They're doing something that was not commanded. It has all the outward appearance of worship, but it was not the worship God called for. And he strikes them. 
We go into 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. Uh, I won't read this whole, it's a long passage, but let me remind you of the story there. Saul is king over Israel. Saul has been sent into battle. Um, it's against the Amalekites, if I recall correctly. Uh, um, yes, against the Amalekites. And uh, he is told that when he wins the battle, the Lord is going to give him the victory. When he wins the battle, he is to, uh, the term there is, devote everything to the Lord through utter destruction. Everything is to be destroyed. Everything they capture is to be absolutely destroyed. In other words, this victory was not for their uh, uh, wealth. It was not for their economic gain. This victory belonged to the Lord. What happens is Saul uh, decides to destroy almost everything. He holds back some of the nice things, some of the better things some of the gold and the silver, some of the cattle and the sheep. And to justify this, he sacrifices some of them to God. And then in, verses, uh, in verse 19, we pick up, so Samuel the prophet arrives on the scene and says this, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. You see what Saul is saying there? I've done it. I've done essentially, for the most part, I've done exactly what I was told, and besides, I've saved these things so we can worship. I've saved these things so we can, we can sacrifice. And he puts that little comment in there, for your God, Samuel. I mean, come on, Samuel, get on board with this. I'm doing this for your God. In verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. <laughs> Samuel says, listen, you cannot do worship the wrong way and justify it. I've left out the books of Kings. If you were part of our Sunday school study a few years back, you saw how over and over and over again in the books of Kings, we see reference to the high places, to the high places, to the high places. These were places where the people are doing worship in the way they see fit, in the way they think is best. They are constantly viewed in the negative throughout the book of Kings. And then in our New Testament reading, Matthew 15, 1 through 14, we see Jesus in a confrontation with the elders. And they say, hey, listen, we have traditions. We worship a certain way. We do things a certain way. And Jesus says, yeah, and you're willing to do it that way, even if it violates God's word. It's more important to be in line with God's word with your traditions. By the way, we must hear that message. Constantly hear and be reminded of that message. We must be willing to set aside our traditions the way we've always done it. If we are called upon by God's word to do it differently. 
And again, as I said a few weeks ago, I have no particular thing in mind. The, the sermon series isn't designed to accomplish any one particular thing. Yet I would remind us that as we wrestle with God's word, as we seek to be faithful to it, we must never let the way we've always done it get in the way of doing it according to God's will. Again, I won't read these passages. We see a great deal in Paul as he writes to the new churches in the New Testament. He is very interested in how they go about worshiping, what they do in their worship services. He, these things matter to him. And in fact, 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 and 13 and 14, most of us know 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. It's a, it's a section, a description of love that many non-Christians, many who have never been to church, are familiar with that text. And they respect it and they like it. But we forget about the fact that it's purposely put there because of the difficulties of 12 and 14, the chapter before and the chapter after it, both of which address corporate worship. The, the how and the why and the what of what the church does. And as Paul is addressing what is right and not right in worship, he says, remember, you must get there through love. You must work with one another in love, but we must reform our worship. Finally, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Again, the author of Hebrews has been uh, telling us about all the superiority of Christ and all the various ways that he is superior to the angels, to Moses, to the old covenant, to the law, to the earthly tabernacle, how he is the superior high priest and sacrifice. And in 1228, we read another, therefore, therefore, in light of all of the superiority of Christ, in light of all the way that he had, in, verse, in chapter 12, opens up the idea that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Therefore, since Christ has given us our faith, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Well, what is the clear implication? That there is a form of worship which is unacceptable. There is a form of worship which is not appropriate. And he outlines, he says, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We see there, as we get near the end of the New Testament, there continues to be this idea that there is a right way and a wrong way to worship. This is not an Old Testament concept. This is not a Jewish concept. It is a biblical one. It is one that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. Here in the Reformed tradition, in a church like Shore Harvest, a term we have applied to this is something called the regulative principle of worship. I think it's a term worth knowing. I think it's if you're going to be informed worshipers, if you're going to be wise with regard to these things, you should probably know this term. It's called the regulative principle of worship. And in short, it says this. Corporate worship must be comprised of those elements set forth in God's word and only those elements. Corporate worship must be comprised of those elements set forth in God's word 
and only those elements. We may not go off and worship God in the way that we see fit. We may not go and proclaim to God our love and affection while ignoring what he has to say about appropriate love and affection. We must look to God's word for guidance. Well, that raises a question. It's the one at the end of that, the, the outline there. Does this take away freedom and lead to cookie-cutter churches? Does this mean that every church needs to be exactly the same and look essentially the same? And the answer is no. Not at all. Not in any way. First of all, let me remind you that the regular principle is the regular principle of worship. It is not a principle that regulates all other aspects of our church. There's a great deal of freedom from one church to another about how they do their women's ministries, about how they do youth group, about how they do community outreach, about how you are do you support missions and, and work with missions. There is a lot of freedom within the ministries of the church to be the church that you're called to be in the place that you're called to be and in the time that you exist there. There is no sense in which the regulative principle would make every church look the same. You say, well, the pastor, okay, that, that addresses the outside of worship, but you're still saying that every church ought to be exactly the same in the worship service. And again, I would say no. And the reason for that is pretty simple. We're told to sing and, and, and proclaim the psalms, but we're not told with what, which instrument to do that, nor are we told to what tune to do that. It is completely possible that two churches might both be singing the same psalm and have it sound very, very different. And both be honoring God. And both be worshiping. There are differences that are going to be simple things like language. We must reject this idea that there is somehow one, uh, 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 one language which is going to transcend all churches. Every service has to be done in Latin, or every service has to be, you know, King James English, or every service. No. That right there is going to provide a difference. And then the instrumentation. The organ has a place. It's a beautiful instrument. It can, it can uh, conjure up grandeur and, and majesty in a way that few other instruments can. But I doubt that David had an organ out in the fields when he was writing the psalms. And in fact, if you read a description of a liar, it sounds an awful lot like a guitar. There is variety possible within worship that is still regulated by God's word. And in fact, we see this in our own constitution. Uh, 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 we Presbyterians can be sometimes accused of being very rigid in these matters. And yet our own constitution, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says the following. Chapter 1, paragraph 6. Our Constitution says this, we acknowledge that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. There is a great deal of wiggle room the light of nature and Christian prudence. There are pastors this morning 
who will preach magnificent sermons in the context of beautiful music, and the whole thing will go three plus hours. In light of Christian prudence, the elders here have suggested that I not do that. We have a different setting, a different context. It would be imprudent to do that here. There is freedom within worship. You know, if we insist upon showing our affection in the way that we want to show it, we reveal ourselves to be selfish. It's all about me. I want to worship the way I feel like. Rather than stepping back and saying, what does God want from me? What does God want from us? And some will say, but pastor, isn't there, in the gospel, isn't there a come-as-you-are ethos? Absolutely there is. That is the message of the gospel. Come as you are. But once you've come, once you've understood that grace, it should begin to change how you respond to that grace. We offer an illustration. We live in a country where you can... Legally, you are protected by law to desecrate the flag of this country. You are allowed to do that here, which in my judgment is a pretty good reason to never do it. Think about that. There aren't a lot of countries in the history of this world where you would be protected by the government while you are in the middle of desecrating a symbol of that government. <laughs> which is a pretty good reason to be appreciative of the freedom you have and not desecrate the flag. So it is with the come-as-you-are ethos of the gospel. We come, and as we recognize the cost of that grace, the price that Jesus paid, as we're going to see in a moment, the price that he paid with his broken body and shed blood. Recognizing that, it ought to change us. We should not take that kind of grace for granted. But rather, we should turn to God and say, what now is an appropriate response? How then do I worship you in light of that? It's one thing in early parts of a marriage for me to maybe get it wrong at Christmas, to buy a, a gift that was not appreciated by my wife, that didn't really fit who she was, but 33 years later, if I'm still doing that, it reveals something about me, doesn't it? Have I not been paying attention? Have I, not, have I no desire to please her? Have I no interest in learning about her and what she wants? So it is with worship. These next two weeks, we're going to be taking a look at some of the, the biblical case for the specific elements of worship things that are to be in the service, and why they're there. And I hope by God's grace, by the Spirit's work in us, that we are going to come out the back side of these with a renewed understanding of what it is we do. And a, a desire to do worship, a desire to be a part of worship in a way that is rich and full to the glory of Christ and His grace. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we consider your word and its guidance for worship, we ask that you would soften our hearts and minds, that we would receive these things well, that we would uh, recognize what it is that you have accomplished for us in Christ. And in recognizing this, we would respond, wanting to, to, to return to you that which you want to receive. We will never do that perfectly, and yet we desire and we long to do it as well as possible. Work through your word and in our hearts these next few weeks. Teach us in these things. Lead us and instruct us in them. We pray this in Christ's name.